Hi, I'm Jennifer Carter, and thank you for joining me on a podcast for parents, teachers, and administrators. Today's conversation should be a good one, and I'm sure it's something on your mind. So let's get to it. And first, let me ask you to introduce yourself. Okay, so my name is Tommaso Lana. I'm originally from Milan, Italy, and I am based in Queens, New York. Uh, I am a trainer, a performance artist, and a consultant, and the creator of Embodied Learning. Now, the elevator pitch of Embodied Learning says, Embodied Learning is a multidisciplinary experiential training program for people of all ages that enhances learning, communication, and collaboration skills through sensory play, movement, and imagination. The more easy version is that Embodied Learning is a wake-up call for everybody who works in education on the topic learning that is also a physical and emotional act, and it is an autonomous act. Mm. And what embodied learning does is uh, offering a variety of uh, professional development training for educators, for administrators, for parents, for everyone who works with children. I work a lot also with public libraries. Mm. And, uh, And the idea is to embody the learning experience of children uh, through, I use a lot the expression inner child and uh, a form of experiential learning through play movement and the use of uh, imagination, which I love to call the fantastic, uh, to make sure that uh, when we are working with children, we are very good assistants of their learning we appreciate their learning we make sure that we can respect their learning Mm. so this is what i do you know um there's a couple of things that you said because i experienced your training um and there are a couple of things that you talked about that i kind of want to ruminate on a little bit um this idea of experience because you know at Oak Tree we do an experiential program it's project based but it's really experiential learning so back in the stone ages when i started that was something new and you know whatever but it's actually been around since john dewey you know it's even been around since the cave people because that's how little cave children learned how to be big cave children is through experience and one of the things about training the training with you is that we did it and it wasn't us listening to a strategy or watching you show videos of a strategy people were actually doing it and I find it um then you said it was a wake-up call because we spend a lot of time talking to not engaging with students where the learning is not necessarily that experience. So my question to you is, what do you think causes the disconnect? Because we all hate being in a lecture, but when we teach, frequently we find ourselves falling into lecture mode. Well, you know, it's interesting because the training you've experienced was uh, uh, online. 
So I was speaking with a, in front of a camera and I had some light so that you could see me very well and I could look at you into your eyes and you could smile. But I mean, originally for 15 years, I've done my job in person using ropes, dowels, water, pots, uh, uh, any kind of everyday life object to uh, create the experience. Uh, so it was dramatic for me switching from in-person to, to virtual uh, because of the pandemic. However, the experience happens if you approach uh, learning uh, by actually following the uh, most uh, uh, actual uh, cognitive science and neurobiology which says that uh, our mind is in the body and the body is in the world. So what we need to recreate is the world, even if we are in front of a camera. And so uh, by, by minimizing the, the experience of the world, focusing on the activity that, that I want to do, I need to make sure that uh, you understand the world I'm in and you jump with me into that world to share the experience, even if I am in Queens and you're in Los Angeles and uh, we are connected via camera. There is... Uh, that's, so, that's so interesting, this idea of bringing, making sure the body is in the world. And, you know, the, the virtual experience changes the dynamics of it, but it doesn't change the authenticity and truth of it. Yeah. You're still in the world, but we focused kind of on creating an environment within our digital space that doesn't reflect the world. It doesn't reflect our day to day. And maybe that's why people have had a difficult time shifting is because they're totally recreating a different reality as opposed to blending in to the reality that exists. Um, yeah, well, I, I think that uh, um, being people who have been watching TV and videos for decades, all of a sudden in front of the camera, we thought we needed to behave as uh, uh, anchors. But, but actually, there was a huge difference between being on camera with uh, our students or being on camera in front of millions of people. And uh, we don't needed to, didn't need to impress anybody. We, we had just, uh, uh, luckily, technology that helped us keeping connected. So uh, by knowing that every person from the first day of birth is in the world with us, probably also nine months before, uh, is in the world with us, then we, um, we can share unwittingly this awareness that we still belong to the same place. And we have uh, emotions that are very individual, but uh, can communicate. And we don't need voice to do that, mm. or we don't need to lecture to mm. create that mm. moment. Uh, it's a game of uh, sensory experiences. Mm. Uh, it's a game of uh, looks. It's a game of uh, smiles. So 
I think the trigger to the experience also when we are working with children is that if they see that we are some way curious, then there is something curious there. Mm. We will never reveal that. And this is how I played with you for one hour and a half in the in the virtual space. Mm -hmm. So I was creating the curiosity and uh, I was never instructing you to do what I was doing. I was just doing it. And some way by imitation, you were following. Right. And I love that idea of curiosity. Um, I, I actually gave up homework and worksheets probably in maybe the year 1999, maybe 2000. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't you know, necessarily highlight that and put up like big banners like Mrs. Carter never does homework and she doesn't do worksheets because of course people are like well how did you teach so imagine I've been teaching for 20 years doing just what you said which is piquing people's curiosity we're reading the great Gatsby and I come in and I'm like oh my god did you see what happened to Daisy then everyone's like oh crap I didn't read you know <laughs> because they're curious right and when you're engaging someone in a professional development or you're helping them connect with their students and you build a story by peeling an orange, people are curious and like, well, what's, cause I, you know, um, you did this thing where you took an, we had to bring an orange and we peeled it. And as we peeled it, we created a little, or you told a little story. And that is the curiosity, you know, especially with young children, what's going to happen in the story. If we're taking turns peeling our oranges and creating a story, we could even create one story where everyone peels part of their orange and then the next person has to pick up where they left off because you're you're curious as to how is this story going to turn out? Who's going to be the last person to peel their orange? How Who's going to run out of orange peelings before? Everybody? Like there's so much in there that people are going to want to know. But it's also that level of engagement where, you know, sometimes we forget, even as parents, um, the, the best way to learning is engagement and curiosity. Um, go ahead. Well, uh, I would like to add, since I have this orange in front of me and I decide to peel it. So as an educator, I capitalize on the sensory abilities of the student, of the child. So I know that uh, uh, by multiple effort or maybe immediately, the child will be able to push their thumb, thumb into the orange peel and pull and then open something that is uh, a ritual and could be done uh, without thinking, which is something that happens very often to us adults. I mean, I need to eat an orange. I will just peel it quickly and eat it. or we can appreciate every single motion and, uh, and that is interesting because you cr you create this uh, this feeling that uh, everything we do uh, is a combination of layers mm. and that is very helpful for children because uh, everything they do is uh, um, a combination of transitions so some way is more interesting what happens between two things mm -hmm. than when we're doing things themselves. Right. So working with the orange 
it's nice because we enhance the sensory ability of children and we know that there is a language that they can use and we don't need to instruct them to that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we build layers, which could be the layer of a story or uh, we could uh, create a, a pile of uh, orange, orange peels and then build a tower. Uh, some way, this these, these idea of layering is, uh, is great because, uh, um, because children can invent what the next step is. And they know that it's going to be still another layer. So they feel safe in a structure, but mm -hmm. still they can be imaginative or open to a new learning experience within a setting that is uh, incredibly creative but not crazy, not uncontrolled, not uh, um, unsafe in mm -hmm. some way. I also like the, the meditation, like so almost like meditative quality because it takes patience and it takes, oh, yeah. patience, you know, um, we want our children to focus and we say, focus on your reading. But, you know, what we're really doing is saying, slow down and think in parts, which doesn't come naturally. I always, um, I compare it to explaining how to wash your hair. Everybody knows how to wash their hair, but how do you explain the actual act of washing? Because you could say, you know, you open the shampoo and you put it in your hand and you rub it on your head and you wet it up, but that's not really what's happening. You, you have to make sure there's a balance of shampoo and water. You have to get the right amount in your hand. You may have to rinse. So there's all these little small steps that you tap into in a playful way and yeah. not a tedious way, you know, because yeah. learning can be really tedious and helping parents, teachers, administrators have fun in the learning and taking the tedium out of learning, I think is... I think that's a huge message that, like you said, it's a wake up call, not just on the teaching side, but also for us as the people who are doing the teaching. Yeah. Well, there is this thing that we know how to wash hair and then we want to teach how to wash hair. But did anybody taught us how to wash hair? <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've learned... Probably, I remember observing people who were washing their hair. I mean, no, nobody to ever told me how much shampoo I should put in my hand. And I remember I had the experience of half a bottle of shampoo. It's probably too much. That's the experience. Uh, one drop of shampoo. Mm. Not enough. Okay. So <laughs> this is this, this playful element that uh, probably many many adults need to, to put into their uh, teaching learning relationships because, uh, I mean, you, you can teach something you can do, but uh, let me give another example because uh, uh, I think it's more interesting learning how to ride a bike. Imagine a teacher teaching a child how to ride a bike. With worksheets. <laughs> Well, this is your, your provocation. That's your provocation. But I mean, that's uh, it's, it's interesting to me because it's just uh, so clear 
as an adult that there is so much of trial and learning uh, and, and making mistakes related to a skill like uh, riding bicycle. And, and I think the same approach could be used for anything. Uh, we will arrive to the rule. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we will be able also to explain physically how coordination in the human body works mm-hmm. with the collaboration of muscles and nerves. Mm-hmm. But we need to be human biology students to explain that. And that happens at the age of 23, not at the age of three. So exactly. I, I, I love the fact that at the age of three, we can just try and make mistakes. And you know what's really interesting within that is there it's there's no need to be punitive and and you know again talking about the bicycle you don't have to which is why I stopped giving homework because kids would get you know 100% or 50% they would get marked down if they didn't do their homework just like in a bicycle the failure is the grade right if you're riding a bike and you fall off you don't want to keep falling. You just get back. I don't have to assess and give you a, a particular assessment because that concrete is your assessment, <laughs> right? You know, and in I think sometimes in, in teaching, we focus on the assessment and not the skill. And we don't necessarily understand fully that sometimes the failure, it's part of the process. It already hurts. So there's no need to hurt more with an assessment on top of that. You know, you can practice the skill without necessarily having something that's really punitive. Um, I'll go back to the orange thing. If your tower falls over, then you'll 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 learn how to make a tower that stands up because you'll rebuild it and you'll try it again. Yep. Um, but again, like it's so interesting in these things that we're describing that are playful. There is no assessment. You know, the assessment just comes at the end of practice, um, whereas in uh, frequently in teaching, we we really focus on the assessment, assessing the practice and not necessarily, you know, talking about mastery or getting to the end of the skill. Yeah, there is an element of endurance that we underestimate yes. in children. So uh, they will try and try and try again until it works. And they won't try if we bother them. Isn't that interesting? The more we try to get them to try, yeah. the less they want to try. I mean, I've uh, I've I've studied a lot of uh, uh, oppositional behavior because it's something that uh, I've experienced in my family, and I needed to understand how it works. And uh, yes, I mean, I, I I've learned a large amount of respect for those who are trying to find the they weigh their identity and uh, their spirit um, without listening to an authority and uh, without exaggerating or putting to an extreme, I think that it's necessary just to have this reminder that uh, generally as a species, we we tend to, be able to build a resilience and uh, and try again. So we should trust children more. Probably we should trust in their their abilities. 
And so the cool thing of embodied learning is that to avoid the rhetoric of talking about the importance of all these things, I need to, to make it either practical or at least uh, emotionally visual. So if we, we want to hear another example about these topics, think about kissing. Jennifer, think about your very first kiss. Was it a good one? Was it a bad one? Was it a 50-50 one? Who knows? <laughs> but imagine that now everyone who, is, everyone who is listening now is laughing because everybody's thinking of their first kiss. And uh, there is no one, I guarantee, who has stopped kissing after the first kiss. No matter how successful or unsuccessful that first time was. We tried and tried and tried and tried, and then everyone is convinced to be a professional kisser. Or at least kissing and, and giving it a try, you know. Yeah. It's true. But, so it's, it's, a good, it's a good anecdote because you think of something that is very nice. But uh, to arrive at that nice experience, it took time. Yeah. It took repetition. It took attempt. Now, here's a question for you, because not everyone and not every adult is open to being playful, you know, because adults, we we get the fun beat out of us with taxes and, and bills and things like that. Right. So how do you convince people to let go and to fall into play? How would you recommend people let go of being self-conscious? Like, I don't want to look silly or, you know, whatever inhibitions they may have. Um, I, had, I had many, uh, it happened to me many times when I was working in person that there were people who didn't want to be involved. And, uh, I mean, it has a lot to do with uh, self-awareness and uh, the, the picture you have of yourself in the society. Uh, I think the time of the pandemic was interesting because uh, many more people had the chance to try things alone because nobody was watching since we were at home or looking. So there is, I don't know, I, I need to do it playful and probably I need to bring people to a smile to, to help them continue trying out or begin to try out something that is not only uh, negative and sad, but it's also light and fun. So I have this uh, idea of levity that is very fascinating and I associate it immediately with the newspaper. If you, if you read the, news, the papers, oh, there is always so bad, many bad news. But then if you grab a, a sheet of newspaper and uh, you put it on your chest, you hold it with your hands first, then you hold it a bit with your chin. So the, the newspaper sheet basically is like a, like a dress in front of you. Now, to avoid looking strange with your chin holding a piece of paper, so uh, you want the piece of paper to stay on your chest, then you need to run. Then make sure there is uh, at least a hallway in front of you. You can run through. And then by running through air compression, the newspaper will be staying attached to your chest. What generally happens 
You can do it alone. Nobody has to look. Not even the cats that are in your apartment. Okay, you just go. And what may happen is that the the newspaper sheet still falls down on the ground. And 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 people laugh anyway because they think, man, I am 45 years old and I'm so clumsy. And I'm thinking only of taxes and bills and sad things. And here I had the chance to use the bad news to laugh about it. Now I'm laughing about myself. Let's laugh even more. Let's try one more time. Turn around 180 degrees, put the sheet of newspaper on your chest again, run through the hallway again. Try 10 times, then you will see it works. The next Sunday, you will go to the park and do it in the public. And tell everybody, look at this cool trick I got. It's amazing. (laughs) That's hilarious. I actually think we should try that, like do an experiment um, where we just run and try to keep the paper. Um, (laughs) Look, yes, I've done it. I've done it as uh, uh, like a... um, performance art project in one of the sculpture parks here in New York City. Oh, we had 200 people doing it at the same time. Oh, wow. That was beautiful. And I'm yeah, sure yeah. it was a riot. I'm sure it was so hilarious. Yeah, where children were laughing about their adults. That was very nice. Then obviously they were trying to run too with the newspaper. Uh, the cool thing was that uh, there were uh, just a few to non-adults who were trying to teach children how to do even that because they had no idea how it works. So finally, everybody was on the same level of learning and experience, uh, and they all tried just to run. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, well, you should should do it just uh, with, with your educators, yeah, as a ritual. Maybe Maybe this afternoon when you close the... The facility. I I try to build a, a rather um, light environment where mistakes are part of the learning. Um, we usually laugh at things, unless of course they're really serious, like a child gets injured or something. But you know, things that it might bring consternation. I mean, my mom was like that. She she was laughed. She laughed all the time because she had such a miserable upbringing as a child. So she loved to laugh, and she was always provoking me into making her laugh, and then my son into making us laugh. So you know, I I I tend to like an environment where people are rather lighthearted, and I really I would love for more schools to feel lighthearted. You know, it's. The the life after school is so serious, you know, the things that you grapple with are so much heavier than what you have in school. And so it would be fantastic if from zero to 18, every day you went into an environment with people who just were like, we're going to learn, but let's have fun and let's make this lighter. Because the world can be, right now, the world feels really heavy for a lot of people. And like you said, that levity, I think, is a great idea to imbue in teaching at this moment. Yeah. 
some, some way I have the idea that life is serious, but also laughing is serious. So we, we need to take uh, seriously the act of laughing hmm. because it's, it's part of us. I mean, it's a way of uh, rewarding and respecting us. Well, you know, going back to my mom, I said she loved to laugh. Um, she was on her deathbed. And, you know, we're all crying and, you know, we're sad. And the nurse comes in and I was like, well, we're trying to get her to do this, that and the other. And my 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 mom looks at me and says, that's why we had her. She's so bossy. And I was like, what? And we all started to laugh. And like literally the final days of her life were full of laughing in this very serious time. And it has made my grief a lot more bearable because mm -hmm. I she left this world with a much happier heart than it could have been. And so when you say that, that laughter is serious, that immediately takes me to that moment with my mom. I mean, it's interesting. If I, if I may talk about your mom, she, she spent all her life healing her childhood through laughing. Mm. So it's, it's an interesting example because now her laugh resonates in you and you passed it along to your son. And uh, when we work with children who are not our children, we don't know how their childhood is or, ha or has been going. And, uh, and maybe the, many of them need uh, some way self-healing strategies. And one of those is laughing. It, it re so this conversation, I hope, would help to redesign the whole uh, perspective on behavioral issues we have. Yeah. Well, I just want to be mindful of our time. I always try to stay oh, yeah. half an hour. Um, but this is a really good conversation. And I think a really important conversation for teachers and administrators and parents to push to the front of their mind. Um, if you could just remind people where they can find more information about you. Sure. So uh, you can find me online on embodiedlearning.co. Then uh, there is a, a YouTube page, a YouTube channel called Embodied Learning, which has very interesting videos that I made during the pandemic for adults who are with children and want some way to do something uh, very interesting with them, embodied learning how children work. And uh, uh, oh, I'm on Instagram at Embodied Learning. I'm on Twitter at Tomazolana. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Embodied Learning, so you will always find a little green circle with E-L in it, and that's me. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's lovely talking to you, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you. This was a really good conversation. So that's our conversation for today. I hope you found some information that was interesting or a perspective that you hadn't thought of. If you like what you heard, or even if you have some feedback, put a comment in our comment section. Be sure to like our page and make sure that you subscribe so that you can hear when the next video comes out. Thanks so much again for joining us.